This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. This is Chapter 2 of American Rehab, Miracle on the Beach. If you haven't heard Chapter 1, stop right now. Go back and listen. I'll wait for you. Okay, you good? Let's go. For years, Reveal Shoshana Walter has been investigating drug rehabs that send people to work for free and keep all their pay. And the deeper she dug, the more questions that came up. One of my biggest questions, where does this work-based rehab come from? And as I've learned from talking to hundreds and hundreds of people who've gone through these types of programs, I kept hearing it wasn't just about work. It also relies on a host of strange rules, punishments, and quote-unquote therapies. There's 17 different types of punishments you can get. I've had all 17 of them. I've been to all three Cinecores. Some of the punishments seemed like they were designed to be humiliating. The first thing they did was they shaved my head. They strip you down, kind of like take away everything that you think defines you. In some cases, when people break a rule, they have to yell at themselves in the mirror. I can't see what he's doing, like what he's looking at, but he's hollering, he's screaming. You can't say that, such and such. And then he'd say, thank you. The man standing in front of the mirror and he's screaming at his own self. Mirror therapy. There are all these ways that basically break people down into submission. And they're like, who do you think you are coming here and trying to tempt us? Like in my face, guys yelling at me like this. Yelling in people's faces, mirror therapy. These are techniques used by Senecor, the rehab we talked about in the last chapter. They are trying to brainwash you. You're not an individual. You're just part of Senecor. Senecor uses these techniques, and so do a lot of other programs. We wanted to understand where this kind of therapy came from. So we followed the breadcrumbs. We traced it back decades until we landed on a beach in Santa Monica, California, right outside L.A. This story is so big, we've had a team of reporters investigating it. Today, our colleague... Aikshree Skandaraja follows those breadcrumbs back 50 years. Let me take you back to 1958, when a revolutionary, first-of-its-kind rehab was born. It was called Synanon. An instant guide to Synanon. And it's not just Senecor that modeled itself after this place. In fact, much of the rehab industry in the United States can trace its origins back to this one program that started right here. Who started Synanon? Synanon Foundation was started in 1958 by ex-alcoholic Charles E. Diedrich. To understand the world of rehab options that exist in America today, why they are the way that they are, we have to go back in time to this place, Synanon, a place that made really slick explainer videos. What is Synanon's cure rate? 
Synanon has no way of keeping track of what people do after they leave. For the people who stay in Synanon, the curate is 100%. I wanted to find people who were there at the birth of Synanon, or as close to the beginning as possible. And I was surprised to find anyone who was addicted to heroin in the 1950s who is still alive today. So... I'm very happy I get to introduce you to... Candy with a K. K-A-N-D-Y. Not no fucking C. By the way, Candy swears a lot. Last name Latson. L-A-T-S-O-N. Candy Latson. I ended up sending on uh, 7-14-1960. Candy was 83 when we spoke, living in Santa Monica, in an apartment that's not far from where Sinanon was founded. Synanon helped Candy get off drugs. The Korean War is how he got on them. When we landed at Incheon off the boat, and we would run in because the Koreans was up on top of the hill shooting 50 caliber machine guns with tracer bullets, and tracer bullets light up, and then tracers was hitting the sand and lighting up, so as you ran, they could get a flasher where you where you was. Candy was born in Raccoon Bend, Texas, a small town with not a lot going on. So when he was just 15 years old, he lied about his age and joined the U.S. Army. Not long after that, he was on that beach at Inchon, outside of Seoul, dodging tracer bullets. Then I looked at my left, and it was a boy from Georgia named Country who shot crooked dice, but he told good jokes. So he'd tell you a good joke and have you laughing, but he'd be cheating you out your fucking money. <laughs> and I saw a bullet hit country right in the middle of his head, his forehead, and the blood skeeted in the air. So I didn't want to get shot in my face. It wasn't only the Korean People's Army that was trying to kill Candy. Now, by his account, his newly integrated platoon wanted him dead, too. Candy says a group of white soldiers with Confederate tattoos abandoned him behind enemy lines. He was stuck, alone, in enemy territory. Scared, he looked into a tree where he thought the North Koreans were hiding, and he begged them to shoot him anywhere but his face. Ten hours later, he found the tire tracks in the mud from army jeeps, and he followed them all the way back to his camp. So look, so look, when I had gotten back from the field, Sergeant Willie, from war, who was in World War II, he said, young blood, where you been? And I told him, he said, here. He said, take this, this will calm you down, because I was shaking, and it was a cigarette, and it was twisted at the end. And I lit it and smoked it, and it was China white heroin, like pure opium. And that's how I started using drugs. I had never had a drug in my life before. That's how I started. When he was discharged, Candy came home from Korea, bounced around for a little while. By 1956, he landed in L.A. And that's where I started shooting dope, shooting heroin. was in L.A., The second person I want you to meet is John Stallone. So one time I was in Florida when I was 15. Me and my friend Nicky, we would go down there and be gigolos, man. 
<laughs> I meet him in his garden apartment in Petaluma, California. He's 79 years old, a big guy with long hair. He's hunched but strong. He kind of has a flower power meets Hell's Angels vibe. When you were 15, you were... Yeah, we were down in Miami, the big gigolos, man. We had a big shoebox full of pot. And we were going to go down there because all the... Maybe I don't know what a gigolo is. Okay, well, I thought that was a male prostitute. It Am is. I... Oh, it is. Yeah. We talked like this for about an hour before I got in a single question about Synanon. If you can introduce yourself and say the years you spent at Synanon. I spent about seven and, seven and a half years in Synanon. Just like Candy, he also started using as a kid in the 50s in his hometown, Brooklyn, New York. John got kicked out of high school for throwing a pie in his principal's face. It sounds kind of funny, but he still feels bad about it. And eventually... A neighborhood guy introduced him to heroin. It was this warm, caressing feeling. And I said, I was off to races. I fell in love, man. After that, he bounced around doing odd jobs, like attempting to keep mature women company in South Florida. And some of that time, John was shooting heroin. But we knew we weren't going to be fucking dope fiends. By the way, John swears a lot, too. We weren't going to be junkies, man. They were the pariahs of the neighborhood, you know, in those days. It was just something to do. One that seemed to pair with John's other growing interest, jazz. At that point, John was just a teenager, penciling in mustaches and sneaking into clubs in the village. You know, and I am sitting at the bar trying to make out with some woman. And here's a monk, like, you know, 10 feet away playing on the piano, man. Thelonious monk, John Coltrane, Sonny Rollins. John's there for all of it. Kind of. Yeah, but I was so out of it, man, like, you know, I didn't even realize, man, I was by such greatness, you know. You're in your own world, and now you got somebody improvising on his instrument, man. He's taking you to all different places. John's hobby was turning into a habit. Before you know, we were, <laughs> we were shooting junk every day. How long does, does that last? Until I went to cinema. Right now in the U.S., we're in the middle of an opioid epidemic. The last one started after World War II. Increased international trade also brought more heroin into big port cities like New York and L.A., setting off alarms. This is an alarm sounding in a police station somewhere in the United States. The alarm is meant for you. It's a warning to wake up, to shake loose from the grip of the nation's nightmare. There are roughly 2 million people addicted to opioids in the U.S. today. But back then, the nation's nightmare was much, much smaller. How many drug addicts are there? Well, no one really knows. In the 1950s, the government estimated 50,000 Americans were addicted to heroin. And the one person in charge of stomping out the problem back then was Harry J. Anslinger. The battle against this country's illegal drug trade is being fought by the United States Narcotics Bureau. Harry J. Anslinger, who has served as U.S. Commissioner of Narcotics since the post was created by Congress 27 years ago. Harry Anslinger's career tracks alongside America's addiction scares. He battled rum runners during Prohibition, helped stoke reefer madness, riding manufactured fears 
to more and more power. Eventually, he became America's top drug cop. He served as commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics from 1930 to 1962 under five different presidents. And Anslinger blamed the addiction epidemic on people who were addicted. One of the answers in this very slow movement is to quarantine the addict and stop him from uh, addicting others because he contaminates others. Is the assumption that an addict has a weak character a true one? Oh, yes, it is true. Any, any little emotional disturbance will put him right back on drugs. Harry Anslinker, head of Narcotics Commission, made a statement on radio one night, and he said, Once an addict, always an addict. There is no cure. I couldn't find Anslinger actually saying, once an addict, always an addict. But during the time he was in charge, that idea took hold. And everybody in, in the society believed it, and the Dolphins believed it. I'm committed, man. I'm like, I'm believing all the bullshit hype. And all the bullshit hype from Anslinger, judges, lawyers, doctors, they all said, once a junkie, always a junkie. Once a junkie, always a junkie. Once a junkie, always a junkie. If you can picture it, there was no such thing as a narcotics rehab back in the 50s. If you were addicted to drugs, your options were jail, hospital psych wards, and two federal prisons. If you were west of the Mississippi, you went to Fort Worth, Texas. And if you were east, you went to Lexington, Kentucky, to a place called the Narcotic Farm. When Harry Anslinger was challenged about the way he handled the addiction crisis, he held up Lexington as a model. How sympathetic. Are you to the addict? Now you're why you're, I, well, I you're assume, talking in very stern terms. You just said he becomes a liar and a thief without much benevolence in your voice. No, no, no. I send more. How much addicts, sympathy have you I got for I send more bit? addicts to Lexington than any person in this country. I send them every day, and I see to it that they go to the hospital instead of going to jail. That's why I'm for compulsory hospitalization. What Anslinger described as a compulsory hospital was also a federal prison, one where inmates were given heroin by government researchers. That's where John went. He got caught with drugs, and his lawyer struck a deal with the prosecutor. So instead of going to Rikers, he went to Lexington. When I got to Lexington, one of the programs that they had was they would get guys, and they'd give them as much heroin as they want, and they would lock them in a room and observe them. Oh, interesting. Uh, you know, he's vomiting. Yeah, yeah, diarrhea. It was such an atrocity of using human beings as experimental animals. Word didn't get out until the mid-1970s. But when it did, people were outraged. Congress launched an investigation. Why did you participate in the testing program? For the simple reason that there were some drugs, and I wanted them. Now, after you completed the testing program, did they give you any drugs? Uh, the payoff was in drugs. After completing the test, you got so many milligrams of uh, morphine if you liked it. You had a choice of earning days on the time that you were doing there, or you could get paid off in narcotics. I choose narcotics. What did I most of the other patients choose, narcotics or time off? The majority of them choose narcotics. If you were dealing with drug addicts, I mean, uh, that's what they wanted, mostly. So the so-called hospital that was supposed to get people off drugs was paying people 
in drugs. And you're one of the, the last people from that... That's alive today. I spoke to historians who told me that some good research did come out of the Lexington narcotic farm. Prisoners were treated more like collaborators. And it was much safer for them than using out in the streets. But as a rehab, it was pretty much a failure. According to one study, 90% of people who left Lexington started using again within six months. For John, it was much sooner. As soon as he's back in New York, he's using. I'm not going to shoot dope. I'm not going to shoot dope. I'm not going to shoot dope. You know, willpower is willpower. You know, uh, eventually something would happen and I'd start using again. On the other side of the country, Candy had been on a bender, shooting dope for 18 straight months. He'd lost his job as a janitor, ran out of money, and that's when he heard from a fellow user about this program on the beach in Santa Monica. And on a summer day in 1960, deep in the pangs of withdrawal, Candy walked up the front steps of Synanon. I just wanted to get well, to stop hurting, to stop throwing up, man. I'm still vomiting and I'm walking. And I opened that door and went in there. It was a three-story red brick building that used to be a U.S. armory. The front looked out over Highway 1, and the back opened onto the Pacific. This was home base for a small gang of people fighting their addictions. Synanon wanted you to come sick. They didn't want you to come well, because you were split. You wouldn't stay. But if your ass came sick, you got a couch. They put you on the couch, give you a blanket, a roll of toilet tissue, and a bucket, and you kick cold turkey. This is the place that inspired a generation of rehabs and created a model that continues to exist today. The guy who dreamed it all up was a larger-than-life figure who'd never actually been addicted to narcotics. We heard about him in those Synanon promotional videos earlier. His name is Charles E. Diedrich. I, uh, I want to tell you a little story. When I first met Chuck Diedrich, I hated Chuck Diedrich. I was an extremely popular and charming drunk. <laughs> I would come to your home and puke on your floor, and you would love me. Of course, I uh, didn't love you. What he looked like, he weighed about 280 pounds. He had a big belly. He had a big fucking head. I mean, a big fucking head. And he never wore shoes. He wore flip-flops. And he came to California to die. It seems only yesterday... When the only thing that existed in life for me was the possibility and the reality of, of escape, of escape from life. Chuck Diedrich chronically abused alcohol. His life was in shambles. He'd lost his job, his wife. He was living off a $33 a month unemployment check in a gritty apartment in Santa Monica. And he was down to just a suitcase of belongings, including a copy of Emerson's essay on self-reliance. Around that time, he started going to Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, there was a meeting going on, and I, I suddenly realized that people were making speeches up there, that there were people listening to them. So 
I leaped to my feet and kind of rushed up to the to the podium and um, and broke into a some kind of a religious diatribe. I had the vaguest idea of the content, but it got a t- terrific hand, <laughs> and everybody laughed. And so I said, "This is for me." The Meeting House, which is here in Santa Monica on 26th and Broadway. And 26th and Broadway is a very old AA club. I still go down there sometimes. Which is kind of my home club. And I'd be sitting there thinking this is where it all started at. And I became very, very frantic and fanatical Alcoholics Anonymous fellow. He loved AA, the support and the stage it gave him. But the one thing he don't like about AA is that he sees guys getting up there saying, my name is John Stallone and I'm clean five years. Uh, When he knows John Stallone's full of shit because he saw John Stallone drinking in a fucking bar a week ago. But he can't do that. You don't confront in, in AA. So one night after a meeting, he invites some of the folks from AA back to his place to keep the conversation going. But this time, without any of those pesky AA rules about waiting your turn or biting your tongue, and nothing was off limits. Chuck could give seminars on Lao Tzu, Confucius, Jesus, Muhammad, you name it. He'd break that shit down on your ass. They'd debate politics, religion, sex, late into the night. It was heated, loud, and they'd fill every ashtray in Chuck's tiny apartment. There were only two rules. No violence, and nobody can be under the influence. Chuck's place keeps filling up, and eventually they need more room, so they get a little money together and rent a storefront. And, uh, of course, you know the the story of uh, of Whitey Walker, who was an addict. The story goes, a spring day in 1958, Chuck's gang from his AA club was having a lively discussion. And a guy named Whitey Walker came in. He was Synanon's first drug user. He liked the conversation enough that he stayed. And for a while anyway, stayed off drugs. That was unheard of. So when he got clean, the word spread to the street, hey man, there's a place down at the beach where addicts was getting clean. And that's when the addicts start coming in. And suddenly, there was this question. Who is this group for? So the alcoholics all said, hey, fuck it. We don't want no fucking junkies in our group. The alcoholics say, yeah, I ain't like you. You stick that fucking needle in your arm. And the addict says, I ain't like you. You piss your pants and put a bottle in your pocket with an overcoat on in the wintertime. The scales tipped towards the drug users. So little by little, all the alcoholics left, and now he's stuck with all these dope feeds. And quite a gang began to gather. And the addicts all began to kind of hear about it and began to come down to the beach, and we would somehow scramble around. Scramble around and find places for people to stay. This ragtag group was becoming a residential program. Chuck knew he was onto something, so he got a lawyer friend from AA to help him incorporate. He wanted to call it the Tender Loving Care Club, but the name was taken. 
Then the group slurred their way into a word that meant nothing, but was somehow a better fit. The word came from some guy who was announcing at 12 o'clock for the seminar. And instead of saying that, he said, synonym, and Chuck heard it. So he grabbed that word, and it, 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 it had no meaning. So on September 18th, 1958, Synanon Foundation Incorporated was born. But its spiritual birth, that came a little after. The real beginning of Synanon. The real beginning of Synanon. So what happens is somebody gets loaded and they're trying to throw him out. And he's saying, fuck you, I'm not leaving. And he says, pussy, you're loaded, man, get the fuck out. It was an explosion of a group of people. So somebody turned around and said, hey, you know what? Why don't you shut the fuck up? Because you were getting loaded with me a week ago. And now the guy shuts up and he looks at him, what the fuck? And then somebody else says, well, you know what? I was using too. I smoked some weed the other day. Now somebody else says, hey, you know what? I drank the other day. And everybody began to confess their sins. They began to cop, and it gathered tremendous momentum. Before we went to bed, people, a lot of people came to me and said, uh, you know, there's, there's something, something's changed. I'm, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to stay clean. I'm going to stay clean. They called this the Night of the Great Cop-Out, and it became as central to Synanon's origin story as Independence Day. So... Synanon was born that night. I'm firmly convinced of the importance of legend, ritual, and so on. These things uh, reinforce and create a very important thing for an organization, the people in it, and they make a tremendous contribution. They give people a sense of history. They tie us up with the past. It's the past, you see, that reaches up into the future. This is the moment that reaches into the future and is the reason we're telling you this story. So many of the rehabs that will follow were inspired by the events of this night. And this idea of confrontation, candor, and people with drug addictions holding each other accountable. In just a few short years, Synanon will go from an ad hoc group on the beach to a national nonprofit with outposts around the country. Its growth is propelled by a powerful idea that people addicted to heroin can stop using. Back in New York, I'm not seeing anybody clean. They go to the penitentiary for five years. As soon as they come out, they fix it. You know what I mean? Uh, nobody's getting clean. The experts are saying, you're going to be a dope fee for the rest of your life. Now here's these old things in California saying, bullshit. Ike will be back with the rest of that story as Chapter 2 of American Rehab continues. You're listening to Reveal. Support for Reveal comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switch to Odoo. 
Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash reveal. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash reveal. Odoo, modern management made simple. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. We continue with Chapter 2 of American Rehab Miracle on the Beach. Through the early 60s, Synanon grows from basically a dorm full of people in California with a common goal to a treatment program with an urgent purpose. Uh, what exactly is the foundation's purpose? Uh, Synanon's first order of business is to re-educate drug addicts, alcoholics, delinquents, and other people who find themselves unable to function responsibly in the larger society. More people start hearing about the program and Synanon expands. They pull together donations and set up shop in the San Francisco Bay Area and even open a place in Connecticut. Where, where do your residents come from? From all over the United States. It was becoming a national program. And with the Eastern Outpost, Synanon could reach one of America's largest concentrations of heroin users, which, in the early 60s, was in New York. That's how John Stallone in Brooklyn first found out about it. Reveals Ike Shree's Kandaraja picks it up from here. After John gets back from the narcotic farm, that part prison, part hospital in Lexington, Kentucky, he's using again. That place that was supposed to treat addiction only kept John from using heroin for about as long as the train ride home. Then he scored again. Eventually, John and his friend, who he gets high with, need more money to keep up their habit. So they bought an old gun. So we bought a P-38. We had enough money to buy a P-38. I think it was about five or ten bucks. It had all Nazi insignias all over it, you know. They get their hands on this pistol that's probably haunted. And once they have it, they start robbing drugstores. You know, we just want the opioids. Morphine, uh, diluted, pantopong. Back then, the government estimated that nearly half, half of all narcotics users in the United States lived in New York City. And robberies like this were on the rise. It all came to a head one day when John says another stick-up gang in another part of New York did a robbery that went really wrong. Apparently, some fucking idiots, man, stuck up a drugstore in, uh, in Queens and they killed the fucking pharmacist, man. They shot him with a shotgun. After that, John says the NYPD started cracking down. And that's when John ran into a guy from his old neighborhood. So he's sitting on a bench. So we, we get closer, man, and his whole face is all beat up and purple, man. And so what the fuck happened, Eddie? He said, man, you got to get out of here. He's all swollen. I said, what's up? He said, oh, fucking Almorante's looking for you, man. This, this detective was looking for us. And when John and his partner were trying to find a place to hide out, they remembered another guy from their neighborhood. 
He disappeared for a while and had recently returned. He was gone for like over a year. We thought he was in a penitentiary. He said, nah, man. He says, I was out in this program. He says, this place out in L.A. He says, on a beach. He says, they got a program for dope fiends on the beach, he said. I said, really? He said, yeah. He says, you just go out. I said, what do you do there? He says, you just go out and you lay on the beach all day, get a tan, go in the ocean, he said. He said, they feed you, they clothe you, man. They, they, movie actresses come, man, pick you up, man, take you home, fuck you, man, bring you back. <laughs> I said, get out of here, man. He said, yeah, man. I said, what actresses? He said, oh, not big name actresses. You know, he says, you know, but actresses. Get out, you're telling me full of shit. He said, no, man. I said, what are you going to do to get in this place, you know? He says, nothing, man. You just got to tell him you're a dope fiend. John's friend wasn't totally messing with him. If you followed Synanon's rules, you could go stay in a place that would help you get sober, which is really an incredible thing, even now. No insurance, no fees, and walk-ins were always welcome, which is what brought John into a Synanon intake center in Connecticut in 1965. He got accepted and was sent to Synanon in San Francisco. Free airfare, too. What are Synanon's rules? No psychic modifiers, that's no drugs or alcohol, and no physical violence or the threat of physical violence. But when John gets there, he's high. And this violates one of Synanon's cardinal rules. When John finally cops to it, they boot him from the program. Eventually, though, they allow John to crawl his way back in with a few bizarre punishments. Shave your head. I said, shave it? They said, shave it. It's okay. They said, we're going to dress you in some funny clothes and put a funny sign on you. And you're going to work your ass off if they accept you back in the house. I said, okay. They shave his head, put him in a dress and galoshes, and hang a sign around his neck. What did the sign, what, what kind of clothes the do they make said, you wear? Please help me. I try to kill my family. These punishments, the head shaving, the strange costumes, the demeaning signs, they were making it up as they went along. They didn't know it, but the residents at Synanon were writing the rule book for an entire corner of what would become a multi-billion dollar rehab industry. They didn't know it back then because how could they? I'm just going to tell you how, how poor we were. In 1965, Synanon was still very much a scrappy, cash-strapped nonprofit. 50-man dorm. 50 men lived in one dorm. The beds were like this far apart enough for you to just walk in. One men's bathroom, one woman's bathroom. Gang shower, foreheads. And how do you feed a dorm full of people? The guys would go out hustling in the morning. We call them hustlers. They would go to different places. Mm. Grocery stores, you know, outdated milk, outdated cottage cheese, vegetables that you wilting will take them, half rotten tomatoes will take them, and you can write them off full price because we're a nonprofit. Their tax-free status would become really important to Synanon's growth. But for now, it was just a way to collect some nearly rotting dairy. My job was dairy sniffer. So I would take a container of milk, open it up, sniff it. If it smelled good, I put it in a milk crate over here. 
If it smells sour, I threw it in the trash can. Everyone in Sinan had a job. It was part of the program. Everybody worked. Down at the house on the beach in Santa Monica, one of Candy Latson's first jobs was night watchman, which sometimes meant answering the door for desperate, strung-out people. Candy remembers this one night in particular. So I hear this knock on the side of the door. Bah, 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 bah. So I said, what is it, man? Is this, is this the place that help at I said, yeah. So I said, come in, man. So he come in, I closed the door and locked the door. I stand right here. So I went upstairs. I woke Chuck Dietrich up. I knocked Chuck, Chuck, Chuck. What is it? He called you lad. What is it, lad? I said, Chuck, there's a Tophie down here. He really need help. What can we do? Chuck said, what do you think? I said, I think we ought to take him. Well, take him. They took him, and he kicked cold turkey on a couch with a bucket. After he kicked, we was getting ready to eat lunch. And there was a guitar in the corner with two strings on it. And he was sitting on the couch with his legs crossed. He reached over and picked up the guitar and hit two licks. And the whole room stopped. Like, what the fuck is this? His name was Joe Pazalaga, but he shortened it to Joe Paz, the third greatest guitar that ever lived. That's who he was. Back then, the jazz scene was somewhat notorious for heroin use. And when some of them were trying to kick, they'd end up at one of Sinanon's houses. Or would at least pass through. Miles Davis would send his group down whenever they came to town. Whenever Miles Davis came to San Francisco, he would send his band to... Yeah, but he didn't come because he was using it. He had respect. But he would send the rest of the band to come down and play for us in the afternoon. So it was only natural that this rehab grew a jazz band of its own. Okay. This is a record I just bought on eBay. The Sounds of Synanon. Featuring Joe Pass on guitar. Side one, C-E-D, Charles E. Dietrich. And Joe Pass played on The Sounds of Synanon when that album came out. Yeah, I played on The Sounds of Synanon with him. Oh, is that right? What did you play? I played the conga drum. Look on the, look on the label. You'll see my name, Candy Latson. How about that? Okay. Yeah, brother. The record helped Gross and Anand's profile, and even made them a little money. And we didn't get paid for it. The money went to San Anand. You, were you okay with that? Yeah. Hell yeah. That's I it. was eating, sleeping, getting gold from San Anand. Hell yeah, I was okay with it. We were a family, man. San Anand was a family. San Anand was unlike a lot of families at the time. For one, it was diverse. When Candy joined... 
black and white people living together would have been illegal in many parts of the country. And the proud dad of this unlikely family? Chuck Diedrich. That's the way Sinanon was in the first five years of its existence. And of course, we hurtled into the public consciousness. Hurtling into the public consciousness meant catching the attention of some big names in Hollywood. Celebrities were coming just to hang out. Lucille Ball from I Love Lucy, Rod Serling from The Twilight Zone, Star Trek's Leonard Nimoy. The vibe at Sinanon was raw and alive. We were in, incredible. We were genuine and, and everything else. In 1965, the rehab got the full Hollywood treatment. Sinanon is a real corporation. Its business is junkies. Chuck Dietrich is the ex-drunk who dreamed it up and fights to keep it from becoming a nightmare. Sinanon, where only the damned want in. That was one of the movie's taglines. Starring Eartha Kitt as Chuck's wife, Betty Dietrich. Betty, who bought her kicks the hard way, two bucks at a time. I was what they call a swinger. I did nothing but get high. And the glittery endorsements helped make it a sensation. Life magazine called Synanon a tunnel back to the human race. A Connecticut senator on the floor of Congress said to President Kennedy, there is indeed a miracle on the beach of Santa Monica, a man-made miracle that I feel can benefit thousands of drug addicts. And at the center of this miracle is an unorthodox therapy called the game. In the Cinnamon game, anybody can say anything he wants to say to produce any kind of an effect he wants to be. Uh, would you please tell me what is uh, the Cinnamon game? By Chuck's own account, his need to yell and curse, accuse and ridicule, to release all his bottled-up hostility, that's what grew into the game. This unmoderated group therapy. It starts with a group of people sitting in a circle. Now the group singles out one person at a time, attacks that person, and shatters his defenses. And then the game switches to the next person, and so on it goes, with no professional direction. Anything I say, what? you will not do. Really? Like a little baby. Really? I want, I want, I want. I want. I want. Yes, I, want. I, go. I go. You're not a man. Your mouth don't make you a man. So it ain't just people sitting around like, yeah, man, yeah. no, that ain't. That's group therapy. This is the Synodon game. It's all, it looks like group therapy, but it's a lot that's going on in there. Could you take an order? I'm not you even couldn't even know. I know. What are you doing about it? That's what I'm doing what about it, What are you doing about it? I took it in this and I think what? I'm you did. We asked you a question. And I'll tell it to you like this. At Synanon, they say you're as sick as your secrets. So you're trying to pop that secret. It's like a ball. You're trying to pop that poison out of there. Drain some of it off. You're a low-life creep. You know that? You're a no-class bastard. That's all you are, a no-class bastard. That's all you'll ever be. 
You're trying to, what Chuck calls, not an explosion, but an implosion that's inside the person, inside the game. That pop that shit out of there. You say hello to people, but that's it. Or maybe you look. Just... I'm not here to show you, you stupid. Yeah, no, I guess you are, Carrie. You're wrong. I'm wrong. You should die. First of all, Ralph Waldo Emerson has a lot to do with this. Emerson was one of Chuck's gods. From the earliest days of Synanon, he always kept the great transcendentalist close. Okay, a few times in my life. This is Ralph Waldo Emerson's social aims. A few times in my life it has happened to me to meet persons of so good a nature and so good breeding that every topic was open and discussed without possibility of offense. Persons who could not be shocked. The game is still around today. In fact, it's been central to so many drug rehabs, including Senecor where participants tell us they still play the game at least once a week. I wanted to hear what this revolutionary therapy sounded like at its inception. The earliest recording I could find of the game is from an out-of-print documentary from 1961 called David. It's black and white and 60s cool with a tune by Miles Davis. This is a story of a struggle by the sea. 60 people fighting for their lives by fighting to stay together. I showed it to Candy because he was there around that same time. I never saw this film, huh? I don't know, I don't know how you got a hold of that, man. That's, that's way back in the goddamn. That's, that's almost the beginning. The largest group of clean dope addicts freely gathered anywhere in the world. In the film, around a dozen people sit in a circle. The women are in dresses, and the men are all wearing button-downs and slacks. And everyone is constantly smoking. Candy knows most of them. There's Joe Paz, the guitar player. That's what I was telling you I took in that night. Then one guy starts calling off a list of names. Following people in the living room. David. Coleman. Jimmy DeGree. And one of the people in that group is a young black man who's lean and tall and spells his name with a K. Candy. Is that me? Yeah, I'll be a motherfucker with my ugly ass. Yeah, that's me. Good Lord, how'd you do this, man? You boy, man, how did you do this? That's incredible. I mean, you got the early group. A group by the sea, they sat outside on the beach. I remember that shit. This will be a synonym session. A strange and violent group argument. Oh, that's bullshit. He think it's a violent argument. These are tools for this group, man. No psychologist has been able to explain a synonym. But many believe it is the reason why more addicts have stayed off dope longer here than anywhere else in the world. The game starts with Joe Pass complaining about David. He's a trumpet player and has been skipping rehearsals. They go back and forth about who whines more. Complainer and a whiner and a baby. You whine more in one day about my whining than I whine in a month. And then Candy starts going after David. Is it important that your wife come down as often as she does? 
She's been here three times now. Oh, I see. But do you think she's coming out too often? Uh, no. This goes on for another couple minutes. David saying he loves his wife and son and gets strength from being around them. And the others in the group, they all pile on him, asking, how long have you known your wife? How well do you know your wife? Isn't your marriage based on a lie? Candy leads the charge. And you mean tell me that you're willing to take this woman back and know that if she married a dope fiend, she got to be a bigger nut than a dope fiend? So I asked Candy, how does stopping David from seeing his family help him stay off heroin? Because he's going back to the same thing that produced him. He ain't ready yet. It don't mean you can't never go back, but you ain't ready to go back now. You ain't been gone long enough. You want to try to help yourself. Don't talk so much. Do what you're told for a while, you know. Go through the motions of accepting everything that people tell you in here. Don't defend or nothing. Just go through the motions of being, you know, just another slob in here. Not anything else but another slob. In this early session, we start to see what would later become a much more serious criticism about Sinanon and its methods. War people in vulnerable emotional states being coerced to do things against their will. In other words, was Sinanon brainwashing people? Well, we used to tell people, yeah, we brainwash them because their brain is dirty. And it is. It's full of heroin and morphine and wine and whiskey and cigarettes and lying and cheating and stealing. Yeah, we brainwash them. That has a positive connotation to you? Yeah. Lots of studies have looked at these methods and the use of confrontational therapy to treat addiction. And the findings are pretty consistent. One paper summed it up this way. Four decades of research show, quote, there is not and never has been a scientific evidence base for the use of confrontational therapies. In fact, researchers say these tough love tactics cause more harm than good. But that doesn't mean we've moved on from them. The methods Synanon started are still alive today. They're used by other rehabs inspired by Synanon. Rehabs like Senecor. Synanon had created something that offered hope to people who didn't have a lot of it. It gained a reputation for that, for helping people get off and stay off drugs. But it was also going to change. The minute they started drinking and the minute they started wearing guns, man, it wasn't Synanon anymore. Chuck Diedrich wanted Synanon to do more and be more, and also, importantly, make more money. But the asshole that's doing all the work of course, doesn't get any of the pay. That's the way it is all over the world. How America's first national drug rehab became a lucrative business by turning its participants into an unpaid workforce. That's too bad. I'm glad that the world is full of such assholes. It leaves more for me. Because uh, the world can't support all the assholes uh, uh, the way I want to be supported. Next time on American Rehab. They were planning on doing vasectomies that following weekend. And that's when it got all fucked up. I didn't know it was going to turn into what it did, man, going out and beating up on people, man, and rattlesnakes in mailboxes. Okay, okay. Now, I'm going to tell you 
I'll send it on. End it. American Rehab Reporting Team is Joshana Walter, Laura Starczewski, and Eichtrice Kandaraja. Brett Myers is our editor. This chapter was reported and produced by Ike. Laura is our lead producer. Amy Julia Harris helped us report this story from the beginning and launch this project. We had additional editorial support from Narda Zucchino, Andy Donahue, and Esther Kaplan. Production support from WHYY in Philadelphia. Research help from Claire Clark and David Hertzberg. Recording help from Chris Harlan Dunaway and excerpts from David, a 1961 film played with permission from Drew Associates, Bay Area Video Coalition digitized old real recordings of Synanon, fact-checking by Rosemary Ho. Victoria Baronetsky is our general counsel. Our production manager is Mwende Inahosa. Our production team includes Najib Amini, Catherine Miskowski, and Amy Mustafa. Our theme song is Lifeline by Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, Yo Aruda. They composed and performed all the music for American Rehab. Our CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Matt Thompson is our editor-in-chief. Our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Support for reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Democracy Fund, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, and remember, there is always more to the story. <laughs>